fast, safe, and reliable. Interact eTransfer is one of the best ways to send, request, and receive money. In fact, Canadians use the service to complete 371 million transactions in 2018. That's nearly 11 times the population of Canada. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca. Hey everyone, it's Friday, March 29th. It's almost April. Thank goodness I've got Shannon Proudfoot of McLean's here and David Reilly of the Canadian Press. Hello to you both. Hi. Hello. How are you guys? How was your week? It was okay. It feels springy out there all of a sudden. It does. Like I feel like the snowbanks are disappearing like a foot at a time every day. It's very it encouraging. It's very nice. Yeah. It's Although very nice. we're getting another little kiss of winter this weekend. So enjoy Wait, it's going to snow again? Yeah. What? A little bit. Yeah. Oh, not a lot. On. It's not going to last, but one last slap on the way out. One the door. last slap at the door. Okay. Um, so we're going to touch on a few updates here out of the SNC Lavalin controversy. While it wasn't like a big news week, there are some things that are notable. We started the week with news over the weekend that some liberal MPs, female MPs specifically, were coming forward and calling out to Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott to either put up or shut up. So um, speak your, you know, speak your truth, speak out, or or get on with it type of thing. So this message came out directly from uh, Judy Segro mm-hmm. and uh, and was then supported by and and sort of reinforced by Karina Gold and and Mel- Melanie Jolie. Um, this comes after the, as we talked about last week, a McLean's interview with Jane Philpott, where she indicated that there was more to the story. It seems so. There's this. Uh, a lot of people are saying it's kind of like this intentional trickling out of information over the course of the last few weeks, uh, indicating that there's more the public should know. So it's giving way for questions for a long time now about how much these women can say, when, and where. Um, many are arguing like just get up you know, in the House of Commons floors and say something, hold a press conference. Others are suggesting that the the liberals are making a concerted effort to shut down the issue by not allowing these women to to speak further, or specifically Jody Wilson-Raybould. Philip Lagasse, a prophet uh, at Carleton University and an expert on the Westminster system, wrote a good piece in McLean's this week about sort of the gray zones within which you can talk about it. He said, quote, If Wilson-Raybould and Philpott believe that the Constitution was undermined and that it is essential for Canadians to know how and why this occurred, parliamentary privilege offers them the freedom of speech to say without fear of being prosecuted. They can still face political consequences and perhaps be found of contempt in Parliament, but they would be protected from other courts and enforcement bodies. So I thought there's a useful explainer piece, just but then again, it, it also raises the issue of like, okay, so they would still face, I think it depends kind of the, the political consequences they want to face. Sure. There's different levels and types of sanction, and we don't know because they haven't really been very specific about it, which level of concern or risk they're responding to. Like, we don't know why they are not speaking. They've right. they've sort of alluded to it a bit, but um, yeah, there's no way to know what they're thinking. Now, the issue last week was shut down at Justice. Mm-hmm. That committee is no longer studying it. It's, it moved over to ethics this week, which the liberal majority then again uh, shut it down. Uh, so why, why was that? I think there was a few uh, different concerns around the table, particularly from Nader Skin-Smith, um, uh, about just that it wouldn't lead to anywhere new kind of thing. Yeah, and he's a he's a liberal MP and has been a, a bit of a maverick on this. Um, he's He represents a leftish riding in downtown Toronto, and so he's kind of out on the left wing of the Liberal Party as well. 
And he's on the ethics committee and was sort of seen as a possible swing vote, someone who might actually vote to have the ethics committee Mm -hmm. begin its own investigation. And what he said is what we would do is not that substantially different from what the justice committee has already done. Its investigation, uh, and it was as a, as a, strictly formal matter was shut down by liberals after a while, but they, this is where we heard from Jody Wilson-Raybould. This is where we heard from uh, Michael Wernick. This is where we heard from Gerald Butts and Erskine Smith says we could repeat all that, but what, if we want to know more about this, really what we need is to have the prime minister expand the, to the waiver that entitled Wilson-Raybould in particular to talk about uh, what she went through. And that is where all the secrets are, and is, not in a, the, a second round of questioning right. of the same people on the same subject. With the same time period. With, oh, covering the same time period right. by a different committee. And that makes sense. So it would extend past the cabinet shovel. That is the argument. The waiver uh, covering cabinet confidentiality, covering uh, solicitor-client privilege because she was the, the government's lawyer as attorney general, the all those those limitations have been formally waived by cabinet uh, to allow her to speak up to the point where she was no longer attorney general. It has been very strongly suggested by people who were involved in this, like Jane Philpott, um, who was privy to some of the goings on, that there is more of consequence to know uh, in the period between the time Jody Wilson-Raybould was shuffled out of the Ministry mm-hmm. of Justice and Attorney General um, into Veterans Affairs and the time she quit cabinet. So that's yeah. about a month. Yeah. And there there are questions about what went on in there. We don't know the answers. Wilson-Raybould and Philpott seem to strongly believe that they cannot talk about what happened in that period. Right. Um, and that's what inquiring minds want to know about. So there's still the, the so the, the both those committees, let's say, are not going to study it, but there's still the ethics commissioner who's looking into it. in Under sort of very narrow, narrow right. purview. Right. And it does seem that there's still some new information from Jody Wilson-Raybould covering That's right. that yeah. time period because we now have these documents before the Justice Committee that are being translated apparently as we speak or have been and we're expecting sort of this afternoon. So obviously because she, she's still, at least unless she's, quietly changed her mind, has still been very clear about feeling that she can only speak about events up until that cabinet shuffle, but she has submitted additional written material. I think she said, I forget the terminology she used, but basically to rebut some of the earlier respond to some of the testimony from Wernick and Butts. So she has at least some additional info to put on the table, still covering that same time period. But as David said, there's everything that happened after that, that people are deeply interested in it, and that both Wilson Raybould and Philpott have said there's some interesting stuff here. And it, it appears to still be sort of a black hole, at least as far as they are concerned. Right. Yeah. Now, okay, yeah. And these documents, I mean, as we're speaking, mm-hmm. we haven't seen them. Yeah. Yeah. Possibly by the time people are hearing this, they will have seen them. Yeah. Um, I think her turn of phrase it was something like it'll it'll shed light on the credibility of people who testified after she did. The implication it, being that it'll demonstrate that there were things that they were not truthful about. That's only an implication. It's not said straight out. We'll see what they say. I just can't get over that the impact this has like, as an intra-party conflict. Like, I'm not, we're not talking about, you know, a, an MP from the conservative side and, an, you know, MPs from liberal. Like, this is within the party that there's this, it's, it's just pretty staggering. Well, and me. that to me is where the story has shifted now. And that's where we've seen things like the put up or shut up mentality like I've seen the story this week to me has mostly been located in the kind of like intertribal warfare amongst liberals and this tension now of if they have something to say they should say it and if they're not saying it that means they're playing games Mm -hmm. or people on the outside who are saying he should turf them from caucus like enough of this like that seems to be where the locus of the story at least for this week until we get more information from Jody Wilson-Raybould through justice 
it seems to be about the sort of the tensions of the propriety yes. of speaking out this way from within caucus. And that's kind of where, where the action is this week. And those were height and that's heightened with this series of leaks that have been happening as well. Yeah, exactly. So we had, I'm trying to even remember the sequence because there's been like, I think four now back and forths. Mm-hmm. The first one was the story. I don't even remember what day this was, that the kind of tensions between Jody Wilson-Raybould and the prime minister dated back to her putting forth the mm. suggestion of mm-hmm. Glenn Joyal to be elevated from the Manitoba Court of Queen's bench. He was the Supreme... Chief Justice. Chief Justice there, pardon me, thank you, to be elevated directly to being Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. The Prime Minister thinking uh, he was interpreting charter rights much too narrowly, much too conservatively, didn't like that idea, and that that was sort of the genesis of the tension between them. So that's one leak that comes out, a story that obviously doesn't look so flattering if you're reading it through the lens of political gamesmanship on the former Attorney General. Mm-hmm. Then, what was the next sequence? Was the next one the kind of back back the other way, like there's shot a, across the bow from the other side? There was another story that said, uh, well, I mean, Joyal himself, the, the judge involved, said actually he withdrew. Of course, because of his wife. Because his wife was diagnosis of, yeah. diagnosed with, with metastatic breast cancer, yeah. and so it, this was never, it never even got to the point of a, of a discussion, uh, yeah. because he Although he had applied, he bailed out of it. I mean, so 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 there's a series of, of leaks, and I think all I think the point is, I mean, it's not to paint a timeline per se, but it's it's to give context to why people are have acted a certain way, or um, to give explanation to to some of the series of events that have gone down. But it's interesting, uh, and I didn't really realize the context of a leak around a. Sub- or a Supreme Court justice nominee, like that is a huge deal, right? right? Like that's enormously problematic from a confidentiality and rule of law kind of point of view. And then, so then what you had as a result of that was like bar associations and law societies, quite um, eminent groups weighing in and saying, look, this is completely inappropriate. So we have no idea where the, or at least I have no idea where that leak came from, but it certainly boomeranged back and did not look so good on the, the kind of PMO slash government camp that it appeared to have emanated from or that everyone assumed it did with no proof. Right. Because you had all these groups coming out saying this is totally beyond the pale. Like this information should never have become public. Right. Okay, so so let's go back to the company involved in this, SNC-Lavalin. So SNC is walking back statements that their CEO, Neil Bruce, made last week that there was never really an economic argument involved in the sense of of, of losing those 9,000 jobs, um, something that the government has been arguing since the onset of this. In a statement posted to their website on Monday, they said, quote, the company uh, had made it very clear to the government through its advocacy campaign that the implementation of a a remediation agreement known as a deferred prosecution agreement was the best way to protect and grow the almost 9,000 direct Canadian uh, SNC-Lavalin jobs. So it's an interesting little slip up there or um, bounce back, but it sounds like they're trying to almost find that balance of Okay, we didn't threaten a DPA because there there is news of that kind of, and and but we also did not not address the economic argument of this. It's yeah, it's tricky. Also, SNC Lavalin is a large organization with a lot of people mm-hmm. speaking for it. There's there's Neil Bruce, who's the chief executive, but they have lawyers, they have a board uh, and board chair, who's a former clerk of the Privy Council. There are all kinds of levels of contacts, so. It is not necessarily certain that any one person would actually know precisely everything that was said on the company's behalf at mm-hmm. every single point in the uh, in time. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I I'm not sure how much it matters 
really whether SNC Lavalin said mm-hmm. we are going to, you know, there are 9,000 jobs at stake mm-hmm. uh, if we can't get Canadian business and maybe we'll have to leave. Um, and, and you know, since most of our business and most of our operations are actually outside Canada, that would not be a huge deal uh, it, in terms of corporate restructuring or whatever. Um, it's something that the politicians would know. And a quick Google search turns up how many employees SNC-Lavalin right. has in Canada. So if you're thinking that, well, the company's main business in Canada is public infrastructure and they might be barred from getting federally funded contracts for public infrastructure, it whether the company said we will leave right. or not is kind of neither here nor in there. In their lobbying efforts. I, I think, well, it would sort of, poke a hole in some of the testimony we've heard, but I, I agree, it's not that they, they really have to say it. Because it was also, I think, part of what made them walk back the comment after the fact is it, it didn't take very long for reporters to point to this massive public like PR campaign yeah. in which, okay, well, maybe your guy who showed up to lobby didn't say it, but you were taking out full-page newspaper ads yeah. and you had these very nice videos. So it was kind of, it, like, it was there. It, yeah. it, 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 there was you, a full-court press saying, yeah. please... By treating SNC Lavalin justly, save all these jobs and yeah. all this all this important economic contribution that we make. Please, 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 please. You must, you must, you must. Okay, we're going to continue on here. Have you become texting buddies with uh, Andrew <laughs> Shear yet? I have not. I am looking forward to it. Are you looking forward to it? Yeah. Yes. Also not yet been blessed with this. Although if you got – so, okay, I'll, I'll explain. Well, um, if you're living in one of the four provinces that the federal government is implementing its carbon tax plan, you soon might become texting buddies with him. There are a series of mass texts being uh, blasted out from the conservative camp to cell phones in New Brunswick, Ontario, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan, so the four provinces that are, that are going to see that carbon price policy come into effect on April 1st. Aiming to throw some shade on the, on the liberals' plan. So one of them reads, Andrew Scheer here. Trudeau's carbon tax will raise gas prices five cents on Monday. It's coming Monday, so fill your tank. <laughs> I was joking, like if I did, if we, if I saw Andrew Shear here on, pop up on my cell phone, I'd be like, "Whoa, what the heck is going on here?" Um, it is an interesting thing, approach. I'm trying to think if I've ever gotten a partisan style text message before. Well, I know in the Ontario election, that was very much the style, particularly of the Ford camps. Um, I still get them. At the, the, their, their messages were very like Doug Ford here, like very personal, hmm. um, very sort of direct in tone. I don't know if that's a new trend or a thing that's going on in Canadian conservative circles. I think what they're banking on here, because according to the government, individual families will be getting rebate checks that will more than offset what they're paying. So for the conservatives, the sweet spot is to make people angry enough and feel besieged enough in the time before they see that kickback that the anger stays with them and not the rebate. So And also it goes directly to the way they are trying to brand the difference between their leader and Justin Trudeau mm. heading into the election, yeah. which is he is this rich elite, swans around in his limousines, our guy drives a minivan with goldfish crackers ground into the seat. <laughs> which one of those people do you think understands the pain of paying five or ten, per- five or ten cents more a liter at the pumps? So it's sort of all right. of a piece of where it seems that the like their core messaging is going to go before October. Yeah. And there is a, I think a lot of it is really just about harvesting information about potential new supporters. That's true too. Because yeah. the, what's unusual about yeah. this is that apparently they are going to be texting people using this. basically at random in yeah. those, you know, based on area codes and, and yeah. maybe marketing profiles. So it's not just people who've already signed up to hear from the conservative no. party. It'll be people who are, possibly have never heard from the Conservative Party directly about anything. Right. And as I understand it, one of the the 
things will be, hey, come sign our petition against the carbon tax, which will do absolutely nothing about the carbon tax, but it will provide your contact information to the Conservative Party so they can start sending you emails and potentially uh, ask you for money for the upcoming um, election okay. campaign. Yeah. And that's, that is really, as far as uh, political communications are concerned, that's gold. That is you know, gold. These are accessible yeah. voters yeah. Uh, who are interested in your message. Yeah, I thought, I thought that was interesting too, not just the base that they're going after, but... Virtually using- all these petitions from any party are like this. Yeah. Sign our it's petition against this. Sign our petition basically. for oh, that. Yeah. Sign our petition. Sign our petition. The petitions don't do anything. Yeah, yeah, All yeah, they yeah, do yeah. is give your information to the party. Yeah. And it's, again, it's using this like random, yeah, random um, uh, area code software that generates random numbers. So literally it could be anyone. Um, interesting. Interesting tag. I'm sure we'll see more of that kind of uh, use those tactics as we go forward. Towards we'll see how people respond to this one. Yeah. If people start saying, hey, what the heck? There, well, there's a lot of tweets like, whoa, uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you get that at 1 a.m., you're like, ah, oh, Jesus. And texting is somehow more intimate as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. An email. You know, if your phone buzzes, you have, like only a handful of people I know. are able to text me. That's right. Yeah. So if Andrew Shear starts butting into that, <laughs> I mean, how you use your technology varies. No, but you're right. right. Tonally, like there is an intimacy to texting. Like, generally, the people who text you are the people who already have your number, you have theirs. That there's that I think that if nothing else, it kind of rises above the fray to strike your interest just because of the the weirdness, like the the, mm-hmm. the, the kind of offset between mm-hmm. the message and the medium. I guess I'm gonna put his face as like a contact <laughs> now, <laughs> so it pops up. Okay, so we're gonna move on. So U.S. Uh, Special Counsel Robert Mueller has signed, sealed, and delivered his report on whether the Trump campaign conspired with Russia to influence the 2016 election and whether the president himself obstructed just, uh, justice in the process. The report was sent to Attorney General William Barr, who distilled it and, and sort of sent off a brief four-page, I think, summary report to congressional leaders. Um, Trump is viewing this as a huge win, as we've heard since. Why? Mostly because Mueller ruled that there was, in fact, no collusion specifically between Moscow and the Trump campaign in the run-up to the 2016 election. There was indeed contact, but no concrete uh, concrete evidence of collusion. Um, I kind of I heard it actually well described on the daily. Like they they could have been sniffing out that possibility of colluding, but it, they never went through with it. So there's a second part though, the obstruction of justice part that gets a little murky. Mueller leaves Barr. Mueller left Barr with a sort of dubious, unresolved outcome, and he said um, he could not clearly advance either way whether Trump had committed that specific crime. He couldn't make up his mind, essentially, and and it sort of punted the decision. That's one interpretation. Yes. Okay. And this okay. is, this Let's, is sorry to yes, interrupt no, your framing I'm, I'm of eager. what we're talking about. I was, I was chomping at my microphone to go for it. <laughs> okay, go. It's, it's, he, did, he did punt it, the, yeah. but unless we see the report, we the report itself, which is supposedly on the order of 300 pages, yeah. as compared to this four-page summary, unless we see the whole thing, we can't really know why. Uh, what we do know, I think, with some confidence is that Mueller did not make a recommendation either way. But why he didn't make that recommendation is not clear. No, and yeah. And Barr and Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, kind of came in and said, we think there's no grounds to go forward, uh, but that might not have been what Mueller intended. And re- 
Democrats would point out that that Rosenstein and Barr are Trump appointees. Yes, um, and and that it it sounds like if you're sort of drilling down, what what they found in the report was not enough evidence to confirm um, obstruction of justice. But obstruction of justice is kind of notoriously hard to to prove and to follow through. It can be something really obvious, like destroying evidence or bribing a judge, where it's like. But but obstruction of evidence, or pardon me, obstruction of justice requires what is called, I believe, corrupt intent, and so it basically means that unless the actions exactly, themselves yeah. are self-evident of the yeah. intent behind them, you're trying to suss out someone's um, mindset, what's, you know, peer into their heart, figure out what their intention is. So apparently it's quite high, uh, a difficult bar to reach. And so what people are saying is that this four-page summary of a 300-page report, which as journalists we all know is a heck of a distillation job, um, that what the Mueller report actually probably contains or may contain is quite nuanced walking through of the evidence that may suggest obstruction of justice, but does not meet the bar of concluding that that's what was done. And so for Barr to say he he doesn't find evidence either way and, and Barr, for Barr to say, I personally don't think it meets that line, you can see why Democrats are saying, well, we want to look at the original. Well, exactly. And, and it goes back to that memo he, he gave, um, he, he sent out long ago about how he feel, how he, he interprets that situation where um, it's really hard to, again, like you were saying, convict on obstruction of justice when there's no crime to to right. That's true. Like the the number two step, like one step implies the other, and yeah. and one of them has not been met. So. And so, although it, you absolutely can obstruct justice without there being an underlying sure. crime, or without, yes, or it's harder to being suspicious action that might not meet the standard for being a chargeable crime. But you, you get in the cops' way and investigators' exactly. way of, yeah. of even trying to determine that. I mean, I, I think. Another interpretation that is as valid, based on what we know, is that Mueller intended to punt this to Congress. Well, exactly. To judge the president's He's actions. leaving it open, yeah. essentially, and for Congress Democrats Congress can't do to... that until they have the report. They have the four-page summary, like 1% I, of the actual document. I mean, I thought it was – so the, the New York Times, the Daily commentary on this was fantastic. And journalist uh, Michael Schmidt you know, said, by, by being inconclusive and not leaving this – decision with law enforcement, um, with the special counsel who is protected from politics, it allows for, like you said, Jen, political appointees to sort of seep in and, and fill the blanks. And um, so it allows Barr and others who have been appointed by the president to to make that decision. And then it, by, by that very nature, it becomes political. And Barr was, the other thing is Barr was just appointed. While yes. this was the most important legal issue facing the president, mm-hmm. Jeff Sessions, whatever you might think of him, was named attorney general, uh, you know, first thing under the Trump administration. Then all this stuff yeah. developed. So arguably he was a more independent thinker on this, whereas Barr, al- although his legal credentials are, are probably better than Sessions, um, they're they're impeccable. His p- placement in that role has to have been colored by the situation that Trump was in. And he had previously written, like just a few months before he was appointed, At a length. memo saying That's the memo. he yeah. personally did not believe that Mueller's theory of of collusion or theory of obstruction of justice held water. So. If you're looking at that from a political point of view, you think, hmm, isn't that nice and tidy for the president that he appointed a guy to this job who had apparently already come to some conclusions about the president's innocence in this? And you could also say, like, so what about all the the other statements and people we've heard from, like, Michael Cohen and Michael Flynn Flynn and Paul Manafort? And so I think the the point, too, is, is, like, that obstruction of justice 
in terms of like the firing of James Comey might not be there or whatever, might not be able to, to, to go through it as, as proven. But there are other obstructions of justice along the way that don't directly relate back to perhaps collusion with Russia, but there are other, you know, obstructions yeah, of... 37 indictments yeah, or something right. under this, including, you know, clear interference in the in the election by foreigners. There are other investigations spun off to other jurisdictions. And uh, unfortunately, I forget where I read this, but it's not a thought that's original to me. If Mueller had dropped this report and then filed 37 indictments against the president's national security advisor, Michael Flynn, his personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, uh, his campaign chairman, Paul Manafort. If all that had landed in one day, <laughs> then everyone would have just freaked out right. and the presidency probably would have been unsalvageable. But instead, we did each of these things kind of one at a time. And then the last piece is, and I don't think we can indict the president or here, are, here is a bunch of information that the the, the attorney general will le- lead to the conclusion that yeah. there's nothing else to do, and so then it kind of falls off. But actually, hey, wait, look at all the bad know. guys right. who were here all along before. Yeah, but the final act kind of landed like a deflated balloon, right? Everyone yeah. was so built up for and this report to land. I saw people counting down on Twitter the the minutes until the oh, bar yeah. summary arrived. And then, like, it reminded me of that Simpsons episode where, where Homer's, I think they have, like, a, a barbecue in their backyard, and the, the pig with the apple in his mouth goes flying through the air, and Homer's running after it going, it's just a little dirty, it's still good, it's still good, it's just a little airborne, it's still good, it's still good. And you could sense all these Democrats going, okay, he doesn't recommend further indictments, he doesn't find evidence of collusion, but it's still good, we can still find something to work yeah, with here. Yeah, I know, right? We haven't seen the report yet, yeah, and absolutely. I think that's very significant. Absolutely. Right. I'm, not, I'm not saying they don't have grounds no, yeah, for yeah, yeah. it, yeah, it's yeah. just the kind of emotional political reaction oh, to it God. was... It's a deflated balloon, but kind of. I mean, and let, uh, to, to that end, I mean, Trump's reaction was um, – he was just beaming with excitement both online and offline. Um, and so he said this this report is a symbol of, of complete and total exoneration. Uh, he's gone to his – I think he was in Michigan last night saying, you know, that, that the other side is the, is the side that needs to be looked at now. They did a very bad thing and there should be penalties to pay for this. And um, I mean, I – you know, it's funny. I thought he could have so easily gone about this and just said, hey, listen, okay, I'm glad this investigation is over. I respect the decision. I hope we can move on as a country. Oh, that's not his style. <laughs> I know. And then I was like, Sarah, what are you thinking? Um, I, well, particularly since the document itself says, at least according to Barr's summary, this is not an exoneration. <laughs> there is evidence for and there is evidence Donald against. Donald Trump's not the, really one to read footnotes, uh, I don't think. Yeah. It's only a four-page summary, though. It's in the four-page <laughs> summary. Even that, then. This Too does many not words. Exonerate. No, what is Twitter? 120 characters? Yeah, whatever. Okay. So, moving on. On Monday, Apple launched a whole slew of new subscription uh, subscription services. It's funny. Like, usually at these events, these fancy events, there's, you know, um, we're used to seeing, like, a, a shiny new phone or a new watch. It's usually all watch. about the hardware. Yeah. All about the hardware. This was on Monday. This was about content and subscriptions. For instance, through Apple TV, um, Apple TV Plus, I should say, uh, TV and movie streaming, Apple News Plus, magazines, users will be able to get access to a slew of content from more than like 300 publications plus TV programming. So it'll have both new original shows as well as like live streaming, I think, which differentiates it from like a Netflix um, uh, option. So this also no back catalog. That's the other big difference from mm-hmm. Netflix and potentially oh, a disadvantage. Right. Like whereas Netflix pays a truckload of money for all however many seasons of Friends there were 
this Apple TV will be only original programming, which is kind of interesting. Just okay. the prestige stuff. Just yeah, and they're clearly going for sort of a, a high end kind of brand. So just Apple. Just new stuff new produced t- for this service. You're not going to see like mm. whatever Seinfeld pop up on it. Okay, I didn't know um, that. Available from the past, yeah. So it brought out, uh, as they always do. Well, this one seemed particularly, well, because of the nature of it, but it brought out a whole bunch of. They had Oprah. They had Oprah. They had Spielberg. She should have given everyone a car. They, she the should have. Oh. Well, she's, yeah, it was kind of like her announcement that she's back, essentially, um, to launch a new a series of new content opportunities, but also a new book club, which is her, her staple. Sure. Her stable I do brand. Love a good content opportunity. Yeah, <laughs> right? Oh, that's so soulless. Yes, isn't it? Content mm-hmm. opportunity. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, David. Um, she's back and. Sorry, is this a content opportunity? <laughs> Have I just insulted? Yeah, this I is. I think we are content we opportunities. Are content. Content. We are yeah. content. I love um, a good content opportunity. <laughs> her intro video. I don't know if you guys saw her intro, the video that introduced her. Her. Uh, you're, down, you're down with the OA. Oh, you're an O I'm fan. I'm such nice. an O fan. Um, her collaboration with them. I mean, it was a little corny. It was very, it was very like, we are in a divisive age. And it, there was no voice, by the way. It was just all text. And, <laughs> it was implied. Um, and she, we need the person who is known to bring people back together, to, to, to bring communities back together and to, to tell stories. And then it was Oprah. <laughs> and she came out. I would have liked it if the answer to that was Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in that's a, right. In a time when the country has never been more divided, yeah, we, we really have need Reese. a sweet home Alabama. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, because Reese, Jennifer, and, and Steve Carell, I, I say Jennifer because I know Jennifer. Because you're buds. Yeah, we're buds. Um, we're there promoting a new show about a new like morning show station or something. But as Oprah said, and I think she kind of nailed it. She said uh, in her Oprah way, like, they're in a billion pockets, y'all, a billion pockets. So she's referring to the phones and that she can reach people a different way. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think uh, I read that that was sort of like the sum- what should have been the summary of the whole thing. But there has been pushback um, just because in that it, it, provide, it provided very little detail about. It didn't say how much it would cost. Did mm-hmm. it? No. Didn't have. No. Coming this fall. No. Dollar amount TBD. Yeah. Kind of like the Pharmacare. <laughs> <laughs> Introducing the Canadian Drug Agency and Apple TV Plus. Yes. TV. Right. I don't know. I got to say, it was fascinating to look on from the outside on one of these events. It's, you know, it's in beautiful Cupertino. There's literally like, there's neutral colors. There's like a spa music playing in the background of the press <laughs> conference. There's Steven Spielberg. I feel like Oprah just, like, you know how, like, when you, did you guys in elementary school ever listen to Peter and the Wolf and each character is introduced with a different woodwind instrument? <laughs> I feel like when Oprah just goes in the world, there's, there's just spa music behind her all yes. the time. It just emanates from the sky at yeah. all times. She was in like an earthy green, or no, earthy, you know, green top. But um, I guess Apple will be in the new running for competition against netflix hulu amazon disney um, now disney's doing disney plus and they just bought up fox so they got a big stable of stuff it's crowded it's there are a lot and and i i think i mean i'm an apple fanboy but i love their hardware mostly and their software and it's actually though been a while since they've come out with anything that has sort of changed the universe the way the iphone did and then right. the ipad did and i mean there's there's I'm, you know, I'm wearing an apple watch and i like it a lot but i it they haven't changed the world in a while and so i th- my sense that's a is content opportunity for a new yes, a good- 
a new thing, a new but, yeah. great big revenue stream, new and, yeah. and new splashy stuff. But they're moving into an area That's that already not, has billions yeah. of dollars sloshing around in it. Netflix has a ton of original shows; most of them are garbage. Right? They just kind of throw everything at the wall well, and hope I, stuff sticks. They are getting enough buzz from some of them, though, right? Like, like. And yeah. it looks and because of the way Apple's doing this, they're clearly trying to differentiate themselves. It looks like they're trying to go prestige. Yeah. There's a very specific market, right? Like if you draw the Venn diagram mm, of like mm-hmm. Steve Carell, Jennifer Aniston, <laughs> Oprah fans, like I can see what that That's is. So like yeah. that to me suggests lots of pashminas. Like that <laughs> yeah. is like your your marketing sweet spot. And so they're trying to go prestige. They're doing all original. Um it looked like only episodic TV, right? They weren't talking about yeah. movies yet. Uh, yeah, that's true. I think that just documentaries, right now, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So those lines yeah. are harder and harder to draw now. Because Oprah's working on the documentaries, sure. but yeah. it will be interesting to see how they get those existing customers into premium customers. Because I don't know that I would. Well, and then if you, that. assuming you're not just devoted to one of these portals, like if you're, I don't know if there's such a thing as like a Netflix fan or whatever, then you're thinking as as a consumer about how to balance that with your budget. Like yeah. if Netflix, what's Netflix up to ten ninety nine a month for exactly. the standard? And so then if you want the, mm-hmm. the Disney Fox stock of, of shows, if you want Apple TV, like yeah, you're starting to think about like a total price point for the month of however many portals you want access to. Right. Um, unless one of them manages to have such a persuasive suite of programming that you assume people are just going to go with you and, and yeah. shoe all your competitors. And, and Apple does not have a ton of, it doesn't have a great track record on the content production side, I don't think. I mean, they've had, mm-hmm. th- there's Apple Music, which is successful, but it's no Spotify. It's and Spotify. They, there have been you know, Apple kind of branded concerts and things like that. I don't think any of them has had quite the same kind of cultural impact as one MTV Unplugged right. album from back in the day. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know, they're, they're Apple. They have a, a an iBook store that's on my tablet and stuff. I can't remember the last time I used it. Yeah, so true. making content is complete on an ongoing basis, telling stories like they're hiring some of the biggest names there are. They have a ton of money to splash around, but it's a completely different it's game different from making game. hardware, writing software and selling digital services. Yeah. Actually making the stuff that people consume. That's a good whole point. other game. Yeah. All right, that's all for us today, folks. Can I get your Twitter handles, please? I am at David Reevely. And I am at S Proudfoot. And I am at Turnbull Sarah, not Sarah Turnbull. That's my Instagram. <laughs> okay, I'll see you next time. For Canadians, paying with Interact Debit is synonymous with access to your own money. In 2018, Canadians made over $6 billion Interact Debit transactions, the equivalent of $160 per person. Interact Debit is accepted at nearly 500,000 businesses across Canada and growing. Learn more at newsroom.interact.ca.